welcome to episode 26 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And um, today we're going to be having quite a topical discussion. We're going to be discussing um, what, give up or soldier on in our first half. Should you stick at a book that you're not enjoying? Mm. And then the second half, as it was um, a couple of weeks ago, it was Raul Dahl's would have been 100th birthday. We are doing um, Matilda versus Michelle McGorian's Goodnight Mr. Tom, so two children's novels. They will also be talking about Raul Dahl in general because we just can't resist. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Simon, how are you? How was your wonderful holiday? Um, yeah, it was really nice. Thank you. So I, I, I've been to Siena for a week, everybody. I've become one of those insufferable tourists who just <laughs> tries to drag it around any conversation around to the fact that I've been to Siena. It was my first trip to Italy, and I have fallen in love with Italy, rather. Um, Siena is such a beautiful place. It's it's all very very old streets and lovely. Well, basically I was eight the whole time, so I just was moving from pizza <laughs> to pasta to ice cream to wine. So I'm back again. <laughs> <laughs> That's all Italy's good for, really. Yeah, well, uh, well yeah, and other things, but <laughs> and obviously the beautiful scenery and countryside. But you know what I mean. It's yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, it's certainly not for second-hand bookshops, which I had expected, of course. But I did buy one book while I was there. Um, I bought a collection of essays by Italo Calvino, which presumably was called something, but I don't remember what. <laughs> something about sand. I'll, oh. put it, I'll put it in the notes. <laughs> um, so yes, I spent all my money on food instead of on books, which is unusual for me on a holiday. It's usually the other way around. Well, you know, when you're in Italy, the food is just unbearably good, so you do just have to eat everything. So good. And I had to book two seats on the plane on the way home, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Double the size I started. <laughs> um, but yes, I definitely want to go back to Italy. And it was, ni- it was nice temperature. It wasn't too hot, so I was happy. Yeah, no, it's difficult when it's baking and you're walking around. I want to go, I'm going to, I shall go to Florence next year, because that's my next Italian place I want. Ah. Yes, we did have a day trip to Florence and the, the Duomo there is so stunning, but um, it was also very, very touristy. Unsurprisingly, I suppose. So, so I, Siena, because it's quite, it's quite small, it felt like you could get it, to know it really well over a week and it wasn't too touristy, so you weren't like constantly just moving in a crowd of people yeah. in like baseball caps. <laughs> so that was nice. <laughs> um, although, yes, I don't think anyone mistook me for an Italian. <laughs> oh, you see, this happens to me whenever I go to Europe. People always think I'm from that country. Oh, really? Start talking to me in their language and all that. I have absolutely no idea what you're saying. What a chameleon. Yes, at, at 100 paces, people were thinking, oh, this guy's clearly English. I'm just <laughs> English. I don't. And it's ridiculous because I am so English. But um, I look kind of, I think that I can pass for Italian or Greek, especially when I'm tanned. Because mm. I'm well. quite... Perhaps if I'd been there a week longer, people would have started speaking to me in Italian, which would have got them nowhere, unless they were just counting from one to ten or something. Then I'd have been fine. <laughs> um, what are you reading at the moment? Um, well, I'm still reading my Cazalet Chronicles, so I'm on the, nearly finished the fourth one. Um, mm-hmm. And I haven't actually read anything else because I'm kind of I'm in the middle of lots of big books at the moment, so I'm reading bits and bobs and not actually finishing anything. But I'm going to attempt to finish my Elizabeth Jane Howard tonight. The the um, it's called Casting Off, the fourth one, um, which I, mean, I just love it. But I can't get to my I've got to wait two weeks to see my mum to get the next book, which is really annoying. Um, 
And then I'm going to read, I bought one of those British Library Crime Classics, whose name I can't remember now, which is really annoying. Um, but I'm really looking forward to reading it. So I want to read that next. Awesome. Yeah. Well, um, I did quite a lot of reading on holiday, um, which perhaps I should, you know, should spend more time sightseeing. But I was enjoying sitting on my balcony, looking out. With you my had a balcony. I had a balcony. It was lovely. Looked out over the Duomo, in fact. Oh. Um, just about. Not. Tell Simon, or did you get an Airbnb? Airbnb. Oh. Uh, I heartily recommend um, Giovanna's uh, little flat. I say little. It was huge. Get but... a link because I want to stay there. So. Oh, maybe I'll stick a link in the notes. And she, oh, yeah. she was so nice. Anyone who who's looking for somewhere to stay in in Siena for, well, up to eleven people apparently. Although it was really? it was quite it was comfortable with four. I think you probably can manage six before it got uncomfortable. But, <laughs> but um, but yes, potentially up to eleven. And very very nice. Um, but yes, I didn't read any Italian books. I did read a really good uh, memoir. Was it the new Slightly Fox memoir? Um, I'm not sure it's out on general. Um, publication, yes, it was a review copy, but um, the terrible title, Sword of Bone, <laughs> um, but it was a memoir of World War Two from a billeting officer who um, had fought in France, and it goes from 1939 to Dunkirk, oh. um, and was in fact published in 1942, so it was very prompt. Does it, is it something I would like, do you think? I think so. It's He's a very good writer, and very he's a very... Um, sort of cultured writer as well, so he lots of literary references and lots of... He's not like gung-ho fighter type. He's more like a thoughtful person. I really enjoyed... It was a really interesting perspective. I hadn't hadn't read that sort of perspective on the war before. So that was, that was nice. And I also read an E.H. Young. Um, I, I I'm, sure we, I'm sure I've asked you on the podcast before, but I can't remember if you read E.H. Young. No, I've never read anything. I used to buy lots of books, and then I never read them and got rid of them. Uh, mistake, a mistake. <laughs> um, I read Chatterton Square, which is a 1947 book. It was for my for the um, 1947 club coming up in a few weeks. Um, it's the fourth one I've read by her, and it's not my favourite, but it's it's really um, it's really stuck with me. I know it's not not been that long, but it keeps going. I keep going over it in my head. It's just a sort of very rich and nuanced portrait of a, a well, lots of things, but part of it is an unhappy marriage, and it's a really it's really clever and thoughtful the way that she depicts that. Um, so yes, I'm looking forward to thinking more about it for my review. But yes, not not as funny as Miss Mole, which is the one that I think I've enjoyed most of the ones I've read, perhaps. All right. Okay. Although, at the moment, I'm reading a book by I'm going to say Chuck Klosterman, but which could could be right or could be wrong. I'll check that later. Um, called But What If We're Wrong, which is um. The cover assures me a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's basically all about... Well, it's non-fiction. Uh, it's just come out. And it's about um, how we might be wrong about the present. So, huh? yeah. So he's looked back over time. He's, I think his opening example is gravity. <laughs> so how people for thousands or hundreds of, hundreds of years thought that gravity was one thing and then Newton found out something and then apparently recently they thought it might be something else and he was thinking like what is it that we all believe today that in you know a hundred or a thousand years or whatever everyone will think is wrong he's just sort of his best guess is at what we might be wrong about yeah. um, one thing he is wrong about 
as I noted, um, I was reading an interesting chapter on um, which authors might be the ones that everyone thinks as being the, of the best from our time in, in the future. Is when he called Jane Austen a Victorian writer. Not oh. okay, Chuck. Not okay. Yeah, that's very out of date. How can you even think that? I know. Shocking. He's invalidated the whole book. But, yeah. <laughs> but I'm enjoying it. It's, it's, um, I heard about it on a podcast I listened to called The Cooler, and I thought, that sounds fun. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I like how you always, you know, um, you know, try out things that are a bit different. I'm not yeah, I just try and keep things eclectic whilst also having my place to retreat to for safety every now and then. <laughs> yes, the A.H. Young was, was not exactly a step into the dark, but it was, um, but yes, yeah, so <laughs> it's nice to try out new things. Yeah. Hmm. Let's talk about our first topic. Oh, in fact, before we do that, let's talk about what we're doing on Friday. Oh, yes. We are off to see the play, his name, I cannot remember. <laughs> Dover Road, is it? It is, yes. Oh, well done, me. Um, well, you waxed so lyrical about it. The It's A.A. Milne, isn't it? That's right. And you loved it so much. And then I said, and then, well, you asked me to come, and then I couldn't come because I was going to the theatre already. And then you said, if it was that good, you'd go again and take me. And it was that good, and you are going again and taking me on Friday. Yes, which um, yes, I've now got a lot to live up to <laughs> because yes. I have sold it hugely to Rachel. It was being, <laughs> um, oh, I just loved every moment of it. But um, hopefully, I'll love it all again. <laughs> um, yes, I. By the time this podcast is, well, by the time I get around to editing it, the play may have finished. <laughs> Ooh. Sorry, that's my phone ringing, and it rings through my my. My swanky new computer. Oh, so yeah. unprofessional. Anyway, yes, by the time I finish editing this, the play may have finished, because it finishes on Saturday. Um, but if anyone does have a chance to go and see it and I do get this out on time, then it's a very funny um, play that is much in the same mould as Noel Cow's Private Lives, if anyone's seen that. Um, right, speaking of AML, I had not, somehow, somehow, I had not spotted that there is a film of his life coming out next year. Oh, yeah, it's very exciting. Who's playing him? Um, I can't pronounce, pronounce his name. It's uh, Domal Gleeson, the guy, the one of the Weasley brothers. Really? Domal Gleeson, Donald Gleeson. He's been in lots of other things as well. He was in Brooklyn. He was in About Time. He's, yeah, no, I can see his face. I'm just. Yeah, he. Um, I don't think he looks very like him. Um, at least in just the shop. Shop toys. Yeah, and then his wife is being played by Margot Robbie. Really. Which I'm excited about being a big Neighbours fan. So, um, oh, but this I seems like unlikely casting to me, but okay. It does seem quite unlikely. She, she doesn't look at all like her. Um, is far too glamorous and also far too young to play um, her at any point at which she was married to a him. But um, <laughs> hey, who cares about reality? Exactly, they've they've snared Margot Robbie. So, um, in fact, they were both in about time as well. So it's a little bit of a reunion. Um, but I don't think it's coming out till next year. But Anne Thwaite, um, Emil's biographer, is going to be the historical advisor, which gives me much hope for it being um, accurate and at least. That's one of my life goals: is to be a historical advisor on something. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think it entails? I think just being generally pernickety and bossy. <laughs> Both, both of which things I'm very good at. <laughs> I, I sort of think it's, it might be just like they email you twice at the beginning or something, and then, and then that's it. Would by, they by, this, and you're like, no, and they're like, great, I'm gonna, we're going to do that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd love it if you were just sat on set, just sort of leaning in with a sort of a bio, like, 
Mm, actually, <laughs> I'd be so good at that. Just sort of wandering <laughs> onto <laughs> onto set. <laughs> but like, get her off. <laughs> I think you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> They're like tasing you from the side. <laughs> well, we can but dream. <laughs> oh dear. Hmm. Right, should we um, not very smoothly? Um, go into our first topic. Absolutely. So we're going to be talking about, which was your suggestion, mm-hmm. um, and is actually one that I think is good this time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, is should you soldier on with a book you're not enjoying, or should you give up and move on at the point where you feel that you're not enjoying the book anymore? Um, so what are your thoughts about this? Mm. Well, I said to someone today that we were, we were doing soldier on or give up, and then realised I should highlight that it is with books, not just, you know, in life. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, for many years, was a um, no, non-quitter. Right. Um, I would, and I would plough on, and I I was, I was, felt quite strongly about it. And I remember thinking, well, in fact, I, I, I used to say, and my brother mocks me for this, that I felt as a reader you'd sort of signed a contract with the writer and you and they'd spent years writing it, the least you could do is keep reading it. Um, as I have grown as a reader, perhaps, um, I do, I don't feel that as strongly. I'm more willing to give things up. Um, and yes, I have, we can talk about reasons why we might give things up and things we have given up, but, um, I still do it fairly reluctantly. I'm more likely to, to, plow on then just reach a bit where I'm feeling a bit bored and then just jack it in but um but yes it's no longer something that I feel is shaming shaming to do <laughs> so that's good <laughs> um how about you I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that you're a give upper I am I I used to be very anti that and I would always soldier on even if I wasn't enjoying it because I thought well you know I could hit the middle and suddenly it'll get really good and then I would have missed it or um, you know, I should, this person spent 10 years writing this book, I should at least give them the benefit of the doubt. But now, unless I'm, I, there is a compelling reason for me to keep reading, I do just, just stop because I think actually I have such limited time. There's so many books I want to read. And if I'm not enjoying it, which is the reason why I'm reading a book is to enjoy myself. If I'm not enjoying myself, like I wouldn't, you know, carry on doing anything else that I didn't find enjoying apart from, I didn't find enjoying. That's, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. I didn't find, you know, pleasurable. Um, so why would I do, why would I force myself to read a book that I'm not enjoying? Like I wouldn't force myself to keep watching a film, for example, if I wasn't enjoying it, I'd just turn it off. So mm-hmm. I think I felt a certain sense of guilt because I know how much work has gone into a book. Um, but at the same time, I think, well, if I'm not enjoying it, it's pointless. So I do just stop. And I think that's really the best thing to do. Otherwise you end up just resenting it. Is there a um, like a percentage of the way through a book that you're like, if I've got this far, I will just keep going, or could you be on like, you know, ninety percent of the way through a book and think, no, not now? Oh no, I think I, if I've made it to the halfway point, then I keep going. It's when I get to like page, I'm about maybe a third of the way through, and I'm still not really getting into it. I, that's when I would think I give up. I don't give up without having made it through quite a big chunk because I don't think it's fair to give up after a couple of chapters because sometimes books don't get going until you're into it a bit and I think that's fine I'll wait a bit if it doesn't grab me immediately but if I get like this it happened with to me with um the Sarah Waters the Night Watch I got to about a third of the way through or maybe even more than that 
And I just thought, actually, I've read nearly 200 pages and still nothing's happening and I can't be bothered anymore. Um, and I thought, well, if nothing's happened by this point, I don't think it ever is going to happen. And if it does happen, <laughs> then I've really, I, this is a poorly written novel because you shouldn't wait that long. Um, but yeah, I think you, you've got to give it a bit of a chance because sometimes things grow on you and sometimes you're not in the right mood. I do have, I can set up, but I can tell the difference between not being in the right mood and just not liking the book. That's useful, yeah. Um, so do you find um, that boredom is the main reason why you'd give up on a book? Or like, yes. slack? yeah. Boredom and, and just like, or thinking, I don't know where this is going often and I'm just not mass. Or if it's really badly written and I can't cope with it anymore. Oh, yes, that's a good point. Because um, I was trying to, I was making some notes beforehand and I was trying to work out like the different reasons why I'd given up on specific books. Um, because around that many, and I could remember quite a few of the ones I had. But um, and I think, yeah, again, it's it is boredom. It's if I find the right, the writing just isn't doing anything for me. Um, so things like that, I have given up on. I gave up on um, the Finkler question by Howard Jacobson because yeah, yeah. I, f- I found it so tedious. And I, what I found very confusing about that one is that it's a comic novel, supposedly. Um, and I just couldn't. Not only did I not find it funny, I also just couldn't work out where it was trying to be funny. It was very confusing. <laughs> yes, that one I was like, oh, so so dull. And in fact, the girl with the dragon tattoo is another one I gave up because I was finding it really boring. Um, and I went in that sort of thinking maybe I won't enjoy this because it's quite violent, um, but I'm sure it'd be a page turner. But yeah, I was about. A hundred pages in, maybe I was just like, okay, I'm so sick of just reading this guy wandering around looking at named products. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was like reading an Argos catalogue, essentially. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so too worrying. Um, what what other um, books can you remember giving up on? Um, oh, I I give up a lot on. So, for example, I do try my best to stay current. And I will try the books on the Booker Prize list and things like that just to see how they are because I don't want to be narrow-minded, Simon. <laughs> and so I'll often try those, but it's those sorts of books that I will often give up on because I just find them so tedious. Like um, I remember all of Zadie Smith's novels, never been able to get through, get to a third of the way through and think, I can't do this anymore. Um, <laughs> because I just don't, they're not enjoyable. They're just, they're experiments, they're not, stories and mm. i'm not compelled by by the action i'm not involved with the characters i don't care when i can't care about them i don't want to read about them and that's what happened to me with the sarah waters that i gave up on i just didn't care about any of the characters i t- couldn't really remember their names and also i couldn't it was unrealistic if something's unrealistic and i can't get over the um i can't take that leap of faith to be like oh okay it's fine i'll just accept if I can't accept it, then I can't read it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you mean like unrealistic, as in like that's not how people behave, or or like, you know, a lady turning into a fox, <laughs> for example? Okay. No, that's fine because I can take that. I'm like, that's fine. That's the plot. I'm okay. just that's what's happening, and I can. Ex- but if it's yes, if people are behaving in ways that I think are completely unrealistic based on the character that, that they've created for them, or if I just think the whole concept is ridiculous. So, for example. You know, everybody knowing each other, but they're all kind of connected in weird ways, but like they all know each other and, and they all live in the same place in the same city and stuff. I just think, no, that doesn't happen. And it's too, you're making it too neat and tidy. Do you know what I mean? Um, like, you know what, like, um, in, 
terrible film analogy in Love Actually when like everyone <laughs> knows each other because they're from London. It's like no, that does not happen. There are eight million people in this city who know each other, and that's what bothered me about um, the Night Watch is that these people had all these connections, and it was like you know really arbitrary. I was just like, this is silly. Nobody, nobody's best friend lives with their you know workmates brother <laughs> coincidentally like just, so it's those sorts of things that annoy me to the point where I think I can't believe in this anymore and the whole time I'm reading it I'm just thinking this is stupid whereas stuff that's deliberately supposed to test you I don't that's fine I can handle that like fantasy novels for example I know it's set in an unrealistic world that's fine I knew that I think it's interesting it. because for something like P.G. Woodhouse um, or Patricia Brent Spinster the novel I was going on about a year or two ago um I completely swallow ridiculous coincidences because of, like, you know, the, the tone isn't serious and it's all a bit silly. But I think you're right if it is, particularly if it's something like a murder mystery novel, if it hinges on a coincidence that, that sort of invalidates the plotting or something like that. I guess in those cases you don't really find out till the end, so I might not give up for those, but, but I can see why that would, um, yeah, why, why that would be a, a trying thing. It's an interesting one because I don't think I'd given up on a book for that, or at least I haven't consciously known that was the reason I was giving up on it. Yeah, well, maybe you just choose books better than me. I mean, I, I very much like to try things, but often I do kind of have an instinct that I'm not going to like it before I start <laughs> reading it. Um, and very rarely, very rarely am I surprised. Um, but I do think that, for example, those sorts of, of Booker Prize books or the more modern stuff that are more experimental and avant-garde in style, I think you have to be a certain type of person to enjoy that and to find that entertaining. And I'm just not one of them. I, I read a book not to be impressed by how clever, cleverly constructed it is. Um, but I want to read it and be drawn in. And if I'm not drawn in, then there's no point reading it for me. I want to be absorbed into another world. So when you mentioned that you'd given up every Zadie Smith book you'd tried, yeah. that intrigued me because one of the questions I wanted to ask was, which in your case obviously isn't always true, is um, does giving up on one book mean you give up on that author? But no, you keep going back to Zadie Smith. Yeah, well, because, you know, I think sometimes writers have a dodgy book, don't they? I mean, or they write, I mean, especially with, with some writers in particular, like perhaps someone like uh, Hilary Mantel would be a good example. It's the people who try out different genres every time they write a book. Mm. So if you haven't liked a book, but um, one of their books, but their next book is set in a completely different time period or um, has a completely different style of writing or whatever, you know, I'm willing to give it a go. Um if I like the idea of, of what the book's about. That's very admirable, in fact, because intellectually or, you know, mentally or whatever, I agree with you. But um, but for me, I think if I've, if I've given up on a book, and it, well, if it's the first book I've read by that author, then it, I think invariably it means I have given up on that author. Because um, I, I was thinking, like, I giving up on the Howard Jacobson, giving up on... I gave up on uh, We Have to Talk About Kevin by Lionel Schreiber because I thought the writing was so bad. Um, oh, it was so overwritten, I hated it. Um, I, what else? I gave up on Crash by J.G. Ballard. That was more because I found it disgusting than because I found the writing bad or boring. Um, and for me, that, that sort of, it's just written off those authors now. Um, and someone could say to me, like, oh, I can see why you didn't like that one, but you probably really like this one. And I'd be like, mm, I'm sure you're right. And I completely agree. Like, I'm sure, yeah. But, I'm also. I also know that I'm not going to try them. <laughs> like I've written them off now. Yeah, well, I think though there's something to be said about that because there are. I mean, there's always going to be similarities between an author's work. I mean, I can't think. 
I can, actually, no, I can think of a good example, actually, where I've hated one of a book by an author, but her other one is my favourite. Um, and that's A.S. Byatt. I love Possession. But the children's book was awful. And well, yes, my example of, of Sylvia Townsend Warner from a couple of times ago, where, where the, um, the corner of the hell that I, I hated and obviously a lot of words I love, but. There we are. And even Hewan as well. I think Atonement is wonderful, but his other books, I just want to throw into some kind of shredder. <laughs> we should have him for an author sometime because, um, I have very mixed feelings about Amy Kewen as well. <laughs> but, yes, Black Dogs being my favourite. I love Atonement. I think Atonement's a wonderful book, but the, his others, I just... And perhaps for me, it's because that's just a historical novel, and that's more the sort of thing that I enjoy reading. It's set during the time period I find interesting, whereas his other more modern novels that I find very bleak and depressing and navel-gazing and all the rest of it um, are more modern, aren't they? So I, perhaps that's why I haven't found them as compelling. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, he certainly seems like early McEwen might be better than later McEwen in, in general. <laughs> but um, we can save him for another day. Um, ha- yeah. Have you ever given up on a book and then gone back to that same book and tried it again? Yes. Um, I think I have done that a couple of times where I've recognised I'm giving up because I'm not in the right mood, but I know that I will be in the right mood another time, so I've gone back to it and enjoyed it very much. I think I tried Elizabeth Bowen the first time, actually, and, and didn't get on. Mm-hmm. Um and then I've thought, actually, it's because I'm I'm not in the right place to read this, because you know her writing takes a lot of concentration. Definitely, yeah. So I up after the first couple of chapters, but then went back to it a few weeks later, and then I was like, oh, no, I'm totally into this now. And actually, Jane Austen, I hated the first time I read. Mm. I was too young. I was 13, didn't understand it, went back to it a couple of years later, and, well, I fell in love. Yeah, so I, I've definitely had um, cases where it's not, where I've disliked a book and then really loved a later one by the same author. Like, um, not really disliked, but Muriel Spark, I was a bit underwhelmed by the first two I read, and now she's one of my favourite writers. Um, and Barbara Cummins, it was, her first, the first one I read was Our Spoons Came from Woolworths, and I much preferred the second one, um, Who Was Changed and Who Was Dead, was the second one I read. But um, I don't, th- yeah, as I say, I don't think if I've given up, because because it takes quite a lot for me to give up, it does sort of draw a line in the sand. The only one I can think of, the only book I can think of that I've gave, gave up and then later reread um, was actually The Diary of Anne Frank. And I, and I gave up on it when I was about 10 and really loved it when I read it again when I was, well, not, you know, loved isn't perhaps the right word, but, you know, valued it um, when I was yeah. 13. Um, and that may be the last time that I went, went back to a book I'd given up on. Um, the only author I can think of um, where I've loved some of their books and given up on another of the books is um, actually J.K. Rowling in that I gave up on The Silkworm, one of her Robert Garbraith books. Oh. Um, and I was really surprised because, again, much like the Millennium series um, talked about earlier, is, is that I I knew that it was, a, it was a bit gory and that might be an issue for me, but, but what bored me, it was, yeah, it bored me, it was the reason I gave up. I just found it um, surprisingly dull because J.K. Rowling, if, if nothing else, with Harry Potter... And I love the Harry Potter book. Is it like really draws you in, and it's just such a page. They're such page turners. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, the Silkworm I found so surprisingly tedious. That's such a shame, isn't it? It is. It was because yeah, I thought she's the perfect person to write a detective novel because it's that sort of you know pacey excitement, sort of find out what happens next. But not for me. <laughs> um, so yeah, what other reasons are there that you might give up on? on a book? Is there any sort of subject matter that might lead you to give up on a book? 
Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I did very nearly give up on it in Cold Blood. Um, oh, sure, yeah. When I was reading that. I mean, I it was very well written, but I was just so disturbed by the contents. It actually made me feel quite ill when I was reading it. I, just thought, I don't, I'm quite sensitive with things, mm. and I just thought I don't actually, it's very dark, and I don't want to be drawn into this. I had the same thing with Lolita, actually. I only made it to about page five, and it was like, well, it turns out that, you know, statutory rape is one of the things that I cannot read about. Yeah. Or at least I, I don't know if it got as far as rape because I not didn't get that far in the book. But yes, I can't I can't read about someone lusting after a child. That's yeah. just a line I can't go past. And the things as well. Like, that's why I can't read modern murder st- murder stories or, mm-hmm. or detective stories or anything like that because I find them too graphic and it's too close to home, I suppose. Um, and I like, I see enough of that in the papers. I know that it really happens, and I don't really want to read about it. I think the kind of the detective stories that I read from the 30s and 40s, they don't ever really go into massive detail about the murders or you never feel emotionally involved. Whereas I think making that nowadays they want you to become emotionally involved and it's quite emotionally draining and I just, I don't like it. So that- yeah, I remember listening to um, P.D. James on Desert Island Discs and I think it was P.D. James um, and she was talking about how she you had to be honest with the reading, you had to tell them all the details, and it wasn't fair not to. I think, no, you don't. Like, it's just, like, the classic no- classic detective novel of the 30s works so brilliantly, uh, partly because it is a puzzle, rather than here is a really upsetting, unsettling scene of, you know, someone who's been tortured or whatever. Yeah, I just, I don't understand the mentality of, of people who, who really enjoy those sorts of books because I, I, mean, I just can't understand how you would enjoy that. But I mean, everyone's different, aren't they? But for me, it just—it doesn't. It's not entertainment for me. It's just disturbing. Yeah, and I had friends with back to Lita who were saying this is one of the best books in English. It's really beautifully written. Thinking like I just, yeah, that content. I just I can't cope with that, even if it is beautifully written. Um, and I think yeah, same if I was reading a book that had graphic violence, however well written. Well, in Cold Blood, I had to skip large chunks of it while I was reading it, because I couldn't cope with that either. Um, so that's, yeah, very different from the reason I'd give up on a boring book. So almost the opposite, I guess. It's too, um, too interesting, I guess, too, too, ocu- too much sort of occupying of my brain going on with what's in there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think for me, life is too short to struggle on for the book you're not enjoying. And I know there are lots of people who feel guilt. And they give up on a book and so they keep plowing on regardless but I think actually why destroy your pleasure in reading I have a much lesser worthy reason for carrying on is that I, because I write down all the books I finish I want there to be more books on that <laughs> list <laughs> so that's one uh, is sadly one of the main reasons if I, particularly if I've got you know at least a you know a third or halfway through a book I think well I may as well just quickly read the second half so I can put it on my list <laughs> If it's going to be, I mean, if it's going to be a quick read, then fine. Like, I don't mind that. It's the long books that I think I can't do another, you know, three or four days of reading this book or like a week or whatever of reading this book um, when I'm not enjoying it. And I think I, because I have lots of books on those piles um, of, that I, I wouldn't say I've given up on them because it was never a conscious decision to stop. But because, of, because I'm reading lots at once, it's one, it's one that, fell by the wayside um so yeah there's there's probably far far more of those than the books that i deliberately gave up on and if i 
I feel still, in, probably for the most part, intend to finish them, I guess, but in some cases I would just have to go back to the beginning. <laughs> well, The Chateau by um, William Maxwell, which we talked about in our Maxwell episode. I never f- got past page 100. I definitely didn't give up on it um, deliberately. It just, yeah, it sat there for ages. And now if I would have to start again because I remember almost nothing about it. Well, that's okay, but you'll go back to it when you feel like it because you know you will enjoy it. Yeah, I will. one day I will. One day I will. Um... And sometimes, that, yeah, as we've, as we've talked about probably many times, it's, um, you know, you have to wait for the right time. And sometimes that comes even whilst I'm reading it. So the, I remember a game of hide and seek, um, as with Taylor. I was, I don't think I ever toyed quite a giving up on it, but I was not enjoying it. And then I sort of left it for a month and then suddenly it all clicked and I loved it. Good. Yeah. Um, anything more to say about giving up on books? No, I don't think so. In fact, the reason I suggested this, I forgot, forgot to mention, is because I may have given up on the collection of Edgar Allan Poe stories I was reading in Siena. Oh. Um, I haven't yet decided whether it's going to be a give up or just a leave for a bit. <laughs> but um found those surprisingly boring. Have you, have you read uh, Poe stories? I've read a few for teaching purposes, but he's not someone I necessarily um, read as for pleasure, no. I read The Pit and the Pendulum when I was doing GCSE um, English, and I I remember enjoying it. I, um, but this, this collection is called Tales of Horror or something. There's n- I mean, there's nothing remotely scary in them. And I don't particularly want to be scared, but I'd like to be maybe surprised or something. I don't know. And this is something like... So I've not read... Um, I've read maybe six or seven of them, and including things like The Fall of the House of Usher, which is so famous, but... I couldn't see why it was like this is such a such a drab slow story, but maybe I need to try it again. He's um, a man of his time. Perhaps, and perhaps he's more interesting now for what he influenced them than the stories themselves. Yeah. I don't know. I think that makes- Please, someone let us know what you think of Poe. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got a defence of him, <laughs> I would love to hear it. Um, or perhaps it's just you shouldn't read them all at once. Maybe they need to be spaced out a bit. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but yes, yeah, so if we're coming to the teal books decision, I think. Um, just, although I am changing as a reader and am more likely to give up, I think my, except in cases where it's like Lolita or like Crash, um, where I just I feel too disgusted to carry on, I would still probably soldier on rather than give up um, in general. Although, ask me again in 10 years and I think I might have fallen on the other side. Okay, I'm definitely a, a give up. There we go. Yeah. So, second half of today's episode is looking at two children's books. We want to talk about um, Roald Dahl, um, and we picked Matilda specifically, but we will doubtless talk about others. Um, and we want to talk about Michelle McGorian's um, Goodnight, Mr. Tom. Uh, Rachel, when did you first read these books? Well, I mean, the Goodnight, Mr. Tom was my favourite book when I was probably around 9, 10, 11. I used to read it constantly. Um, and Radal was something I just really grew up with. I remember we had all the books at home. Um, my sister had read them, my brother had read them, and then my was reading them. Well, actually, my brother didn't really read anything. I don't know why I said that. Um, <laughs> he would have, have had them read to him, but um, <laughs> um, I just really enjoyed Radal. And the more I learned about him as a person, I found him really interesting because of all the you know different things that he'd done as a younger person, like he'd been in the war and things. Um, and I loved, I remember loving Matilda because I thought, 
at the time, I was like, I'm just like Matilda. I'm in a family where no one understands me, um, <laughs> and I love to read. Um, so and you have psycho telekinetic powers. <laughs> it's all there. It was like reading about myself <laughs> in a mirror, <laughs> but I could move with my fingers. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, everyone can move well, you know what I mean. <laughs> from like, holding out my hand. Um, so, yeah, they're both very much tied up with, with my childhood and my childhood memories. And how about you? Um, I, yeah, similarly, I was reading Roald Dahl maybe age nine or ten. I read um, most of them then, and probably not since, actually. Uh, going with Mr. Time, I read for school. It was I was about twelve, and we did it as our book um, in in school. I mean, I can. I thought about doing that, but I can't because I know I'll just cry. And I've done <laughs> it too many times in class with books for me to continue. It's very right. Well, sixty-five-year-old Mr. Bourne was not a man for tears. <laughs> he was. <laughs> he took us through it very steadily. Um, and in fact, I, I just thought about it he also we also did going solo with him is it going solo yeah 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 which i actually remember nothing at all about so that stayed with me much less than the the other books sorry but matilda was also my favorite partly because i loved the film so much as well um which is wonderful partly because it's even further a stretch because obviously i was a boy but i was still like matilda is me <laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't even like i was misunderstood by my family all my family are bookworms <laughs> i wasn't remotely like matilda except i like read, reading but and in fact there's a case where normally i wouldn't really be able to cope with too much unkindness or cruelty in a book particularly at that age but um Miss, Mrs. Trunchbull with her sort of swinging girls around by their pigtails and locking people in spiky cages and all that sort of thing i think because it's Basically, a sort of fairy tale level of cartoon, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, you, I think when you're reading it, it's like, oh, isn't it dreadful? But you know, it's, it would never really happen. Whereas if it had been, you know, a teacher who could, who might have existed, yeah. um, then it might be much more unsettling to read about. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so yes, M- Matilda was my favourite, but I also I really loved James and the Giant Peach. Yeah. It's a great one. Um, I don't think I could read that now since I've since become very arachnophobic, so I may not be able to cope with the spider in it, but maybe I'll give it a whirl. Um, in fact, I also I need to look up who wrote this. I was obsessed with a play version of it that we had in the classroom. Oh. I just used to re-read that and reread that. But, um, I can't imagine it was better than the original book, but that was what I wanted to do. My early love of reading plays. So there you go. Wow. Um, I I very much loved um, the BFG. That was my one of my favourites, um, and well, partly because I also had it on video, the old animated version. Of oh yes, yeah. And me and my brother loved that. We would watch that again and again. And we also had the video of Danny the Champion of the World. Oh, we had that as well. I love my actually my uh, friend at work just bought the DVD. Um, to show her class because we were talking about it and we were like, oh, it must be available somewhere because we both only had it on video and it is on DVD um, and I am going to borrow it and have a little weekend of enjoying myself watching Diary of Champions World but I love that book as well and those are my three favourites Matilda, the BFG and Danny the Champion of the World I always preferred those ones more than um, like, I was never a massive fan of um, can't think of Charlie and the yeah, Chocolate Factory never was really bothered by that. Um, I liked the stories that had more of a whiff of reality about them, I suppose. 
And for those who, I think because um, Daniel Shepard of the World might be one of the lesser known <laughs> ones, um, for those who don't know, it basically revolves around um, drugging, what is it, pigeons? Yeah. Um, and Danny and his dad doing that to get them away from some evil landowner or something like that. I don't remember the ins and outs of the plot. Gypsy Caravan, that's what captured me. <laughs> that was the stark realism you were after. Caravan. My mum was like, no. Um, <laughs> my, whereas my mum built a gypsy caravan in our back garden out of old scraps of wood. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. I mean, this was after we were children, I should point out. <laughs> It's just for her. It's her little sort of painting, writing for her. Um, yes, yeah, so, <laughs> remember, and mum listens, so hi mum. Um, the, the vivid experience of being in Ikea and her coming over saying, you can just take wood from the skips. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is from my mother that I get my artistic imagination, but sadly I have not inherited her, her skills with putting things together. The Gypsy Caravan would certainly not be standing if I tried to put it together. <laughs> Um, so yes, I, I don't know if I ever read Danny Chamber in the World. I, I think I had it read to me, and I definitely love the, the TV adaptation. But the, um, the ones... I was a very squeamish child, and so I couldn't cope with two of them. I couldn't cope with the twits, yeah. because they had food in their beard, and I found that so disgusting, and I still find that so disgusting, that it's like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> um, the BFG, I feel like there's something about earwax or something like that in there that yeah. repulsed me so much that I was like, no. Again, I'm out. I couldn't handle the witches because I was so terrified by it. Oh, yes, of course. I don't think I even tried, to be honest. Someone warned me off it. I remember watching the film and being absolutely terrified, so much to the point where I like, had to leave the room. My mum was like, right, that's it, you're not reading that book. And I was like, okay. So uh, it's just too much for me. We were very sensitive children, weren't we? Sensitive child, and also where it says, like, you know, you don't know who the witches could be. And I was like, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at your mother with distrust immediately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think and I, I did also love Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as, as well. But I, I, I think what makes Roald Dahl so amazing for children is, and indeed for adults, I guess, even rereading them, is the way he just comes up this these worlds where it's realistic people often, mm. but there's something just weirdly distorted about the world that still functions as a as a, as a fully functioning environment for for a story to take place with i don't know what i'm trying to say but something like the james and giant peach the only odd thing there is the giant peach everything else you know it's a maybe exaggerated world but it's but it's believable and james himself is very believable child and chocolate factory is all very believable except this bizarre factory exists. so it's sort of he just he comes up with this amazing concept and then just implant imprints the um the real world onto it or a slightly distorted version of the real world and i think that's it's very easy to access as a child, I think, because it's, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of, you, you can understand what's going on whilst enjoying this one really silly idea in it. Yeah, and I think um, that's what he captures really well. It's like this, this, the colourfulness of children's imaginations, but they're also very mm-hmm. rooted in reality. So you can recognise yourself in the characters. You can put yourself in the shoes of the hero or the heroine. Um, and you can have these wonderful adventures and, you can get lost in the story, but at the same time, they're just a little bit too unrealistic for you to feel scared, like genuinely scared. Or anything yeah. else. Like, I mean, apart from the witches, which I did find scary, but everything else, it's like, oh, you know, aren't these people evil and horrible? But they're evil and horrible, and they live in a peach, so I'm not that scared. That's not going to happen <laughs> to me. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like, in some ways, obviously, 
better written by him, but the other sorts of concepts that a child might come up with, they'd just be like, he lives with these horrible aunts, and there's a huge peach, (laughs) or like, you know, what child doesn't love sweets? So like, there's this factory where there's chocolate everywhere, you can, that sort of thing. Um, And I think that that's his, his amazing knack was just understanding the child's imagination, the child's brain, um, and yeah, not talking down to children, sort of on being on their level was also, you know, crafting the stories yeah. really well. Um, George's Marvelous Medicine, that was another one I loved, and I can't right now remember what the Marvelous Medicine yeah, did. Lots of different you? things, I think, to different people. But, uh, yeah, no, oh, that's right. a good one, but that's for younger, quite younger readers. My nephews are, um, are reading all the books at the moment, and um, I quite enjoy reading, when I'm there at their bedtime, I enjoy reading bits of it to them, and they always ask questions like, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean? That's a made-up word, it's a made-up word, it's a made-up word. They, they <laughs> love it, like, and they're not big readers, but they really enjoy reading them by themselves as well, and I think that's something that he captures really well, is he gets children wanting to read, because they are exciting and silly as well. It's the silly that, I mean, my boys love the silliness of them, and they think it's absolutely hilarious. Like all the mention of bodily functions and things like that, they just can't get it, can't get enough of it. <laughs> Whereas that was me being a, a, a blushing at those even age nine. Right. <laughs> I did use sort of revolting rhymes. That, was that what they were called? The yeah. sort of retellings of fairy tales. Yeah, I mean, I had all of these, and I just loved. I used to and. I think also what's great about them is that they're the kind of stories that you can go back to again and again and again. Um, like I've, all my copies mm. of Raoul Dahl books are absolutely disgusting where I've clearly read them millions of times and they're all folded and covered in food and all sorts of things. Um, <laughs> and it's just great that children can love them so much. And I really enjoy kind of in- introducing them into lessons at school and things because the kids are really familiar with the stories. Um, they're also widely mm. translated, so even like my kids are mostly French, but they've read them in French, so they know the stories. Um, and it's, yeah, it's great. Uh, and really helped by having one illustrator as well, like Quentin Blake's illustrations are so great, it's and it's nice great. to have them consistent. We were up on my road and went to my school. Really? Gosh, you went, to, you went to sort of school that has Quentin's at it. Yeah, well, like, it was <laughs> a fancy <laughs> school um, in Quentin Blake's day, not in mine. Um, just the just the local state grammar school, nothing special. Um, but... <laughs> oh, grammar schools, what a talking point! Oh, no, but let's no, let's okay. not talk about it. Um, but yeah, no, he lived on my road, and um, he was. Um, I think he actually visited my school at some point, but I don't think I was there. Um, so yeah, a big a big claim to fame for for Sid Cup. <laughs> I knew there had to be one. Well, also the Rolling Stones were formed on Sid Cup railway station platform, so you know, there's two things now. I don't believe that for a moment, but I'm very pleased. <laughs> <laughs> Seems so unlikely. Why would they do it on a... There used to be a very famous um, arts college in Sidcup, and all of the Rolling Stones are from the Sidcup area, so... I didn't make it up. You can Google that. It's true. One of the Rolling Stones drowned in Amon's swimming pool, so there you go. <laughs> it's a Rolling Stones fact. Sometime after Amon died, but, you know... There you go. Wow. <laughs> so this podcast has so subtly become a Rolling Stones podcast that no one would have even noticed. <laughs> and if they can't get no satisfaction, then we'll just have to go back to the topic in question. <laughs> Simon, that's shameful. <laughs> yeah, and I am ashamed if that helps anybody. <laughs> I can't apologise enough. But um, <laughs> so, so Matilda, um, 
for, well, so, so just say in fact, because we've not talked about the plot particularly, um, for those who don't know, um, it's about a girl who's um, extremely intelligent, loves books, but um, her her mum and dad and her brother are all very uncouth and very um, unintelligent, I guess. Um, her only solace um, at the school that is otherwise run by the ferocious Miss, Mrs. Trun- Miss Trunchbull um, is a teacher called Miss Honey, who um, recognises her intelligence, which um, comes out in through sums, actually, rather than literature. She's able to do enormously difficult sums. Um, so they strike up a friendship, which does later involve Matilda discovering that she can move objects with her mind, essentially. Um, yeah, I th- it's probably a bit late in the conversation to throw all that in, but I thought we should explain what it's about, for those who don't know. Um, have, did you see the stage musical? I haven't seen it yet. I really want to. Mm, I saw it last year, um, and it is really fun. It's obviously for children, primarily, but um, Tim mentions the lyrics are very clever, and the choreography is fantastic. It's just it's, it's a lovely nostalgia fest, basically. I really, really want to see it. I need to put it Um So the comparison we're going with today is with an author who is not noted for being particularly over the top, uh, Michelle McGorion's Goodnight, Mr. Tom. Um, oh. Can you give us a brief intro to Goodnight, Mr. Tom? Can indeed. Goodnight, Mr. Tom is about uh, an elderly gentleman called Tom. He's not actually that old, but... He's probably about 35 or something. Yeah, <laughs> seems like he's really old. Um, and he lives in a village in the middle of nowhere in, I believe, Devon, but I may have made that up. We always get the counties wrong when we try and do counties. Somewhere <laughs> south. <laughs> not London. And um, <laughs> when war is declared... The village receives a load of evacuees and Tom is a widower, he lives by himself, he's very crusty and, you know, he's got this reputation for for being quite um, difficult and he has this boy foisted upon him and who come from London and he's obviously from a very poor home and um, he hasn't been very well looked after and he's like, look, you know, I don't, I didn't say that I would do this. You know, I'm going to have him for like a night and then you need to find somebody else, basically. So you're like, oh, this is so sad. Um, and then Willie, who's the little boy, um, he like spends his first night there and he's so anxious and scared and he wets his bed and, um, and gradually over time you realize, well, he ends up staying with, with Tom, um, as his evacuee and, um, over time you realize that that Willie's had this awful life back in London. His mother's abusive towards him and um, he's very poor and all the rest of it. And um, it's just about the gradual flowering of this little boy under the love of Tom and being in the countryside and having the opportunity to have an education and do the things that he never got to do in London. Um, And lots of awful, heartbreaking things happen. And it's the most devastating book in some places, but also the most beautiful and uplifting book in other places. And it's just like even now, just talking about it, I can just <laughs> anyway. it's a little, little cry. Little I'll, cry. <laughs> well, I'll take over for a moment then to give you a moment, you know, dab, dab at your eyes. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> yeah, I think it, in some ways it's a strange thing to compare with Matilda. We just, I guess, we just both wanted to do things that meant a lot to us as children because um, it is just almost grimly realistic in places, as well as beautifully realistic in others, as you, as you say. Um, the, the stakes are much higher here because the characters behave realistically. You've got you've got no one as evil as Miss, Mrs. 
yeah. as mistrunchable in terms of like the cartoonist cruelty. Um, what you've got is very believable cruelty yeah. um, that that could and does happen to children every day. So you're, you're particularly, I think, reading as a child, you're just. You're, I guess you're you're not quite as maybe as empathetic as a child as as you are later, but you still think, gosh, this is a this is happening to someone. This is a this is a real mother who is doing this, and it's a bit of a shock, particularly for those of us who are lucky enough to grow up in in, in very loving homes to sort of see the flip side of not only thrown out of their normal home setting because of evacuation must have been traumatic, what whatever sort of background you came from, but. Um, as you say, as you discover more and more about what he's been through and what he goes through later in the book when he's when he's sent back for a while. Yeah. Um, I mean, the the scene, and this is a spoiler, guys, so close your ears for a moment if you want. The scene where you discover he's been shut in a cupboard oh, with, with, the, with his sister and that she has died in his arms. <laughs> My gosh, that, that that's definitely stayed with me. In fact, what's really stayed with me is, is Miss, and this is actually from the, TV film <laughs> where, <laughs> where where Tom finds out about that and his response to finding out about it. I mean, it's just it's just utterly heartbreaking. And I used to, my mum got to the point where she was like, "Look, I can't let you keep reading this book because I keep coming up to say goodnight to you, and you're just like a mess." <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I just like I can't stop reading it. And the what when his I can't say because it will ruin it for people, but his friend Zach um, that he meets. And mm. spend all their time together, and that's such a beautiful friendship. And the how that ends is just, I can't even think about it without <laughs> to cry. It's um, a mistake, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just the most. There was the, a book as a child, it was, I think, it was the first book I'd read that I realised that bad things happened to people who were nice. Um, mm-hmm. And it was because it's set during the war and it is realistic. And I thought, well, you know, this must have happened to people. This was real. Um, and it really shocked me how adults could be towards children, how cruel people could be, and also how cruel life could be, like how upsetting and unfair things could be. Um, you know, like Tom's wife and child have died and, you know, he loved them very much. And the grief that he's obviously carried with him for many years is also very sensitively portrayed. Um, and that's unpicked quite slowly through the book. Like originally, he's very reluctant to have Willie because he's closed himself off from love for so long because he doesn't want to get hurt again the way that he has after his family died. And mm-hmm. I just think it's such a beautiful book. And it's also amazing that she manages to express all of those very complex and quite mature emotions in a way that children can process and, and empathise with. Also, because my first... Um understanding of evacuees my first encounter with them was the narnia books or particularly line which in the wardrobe i guess um it does seem i don't know if it's deliberate on her path or not it's almost like a riposte that i guess because in the chronicles of narnia the evacuation itself doesn't doesn't really seem to affect the children that much yeah. and, and they're going to this beautiful house they're going together they're a bit like uncertain but they've got company the adventure is getting into Narnia, obviously. That's where, and and that's where you got the White Witch. Who, you, no, no child is thinking, "Gosh, I could actually meet the White Witch." There's, there's like they're enjoying the the terrors there because they're not very real, yeah. um, in 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 the way they're portrayed. Um, so it's interesting, sort of reading those against each other. How you've got, so yeah, there's the actual details of what it must have been like to be an evacuee, um, and the actual traumas contrasted with with much sort of rosier. Um, 
plot device sort of evacuation, I guess. Yeah. Um, you and I probably came to different sides um, in reading about the evacuation in that I found it interesting to see the countryside through the perspective, so through the, so through the eyes of a Londoner, things that I took for granted had Willie, you know, confused or, you know, it was all new to him. Whereas presumably you were, you were sort of more on his side in terms of seeing the countryside through the eyes of a Londoner. Yeah, no, and I remember reading it and thinking, oh, the countryside sounds wonderful. Um, and it I, is. <laughs> I wonder what it would be like to live there. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And I, I felt that, that whole part as well of, of him leaving London behind and moving to the countryside and seeing how... Um, you know, participating in all of those countryside rituals and, and you see, it's a bit like, uh, Mary in the Secret Garden, you know, once he's been there a while, he starts to fill out and he looks healthier. And it's this association with like London being this place of, uh, depravity and then you move to the countryside and all of a sudden you're this rosy cheeked, sturdy child. Um, I'm I, having a revelation here, Rachel. Do you think this book is why I don't like London? <laughs> do, you, do, you think, do you think it's imprinted on me that, that, that London is a seat of depravity? <laughs> it really isn't, okay. Um, <laughs> it so explains it's, everything. <laughs> it, well, it kind of does. It does, but, you know, at the time, obviously, London was a bit awful, really, if you lived in the... Well, I think it still is, let's be honest. If you live on the wrong side of the tracks, then for sure. Um, but I think, I think what was also really interesting was it showed that a complete um, ignorance that people in the countryside had of the reality of life for many people in London mm-hmm. and in cities in general. I remember how shocked they are that they've all got nits and lice and things like that. Like, why on earth have they got? They're like infested um, and also very poorly malnourished, very poorly nourished and um, you know, that their clothes are terrible and the way that they speak and how little they know. And you see that real contrast between the way of life within people in the same country mm-hmm. really I mean they're not that far apart but their lives couldn't be more different have you read um Doreen by Barbara Noble it's a Persephone I book I would like to that's really good it's um um I do love reading books about evacuees um in fact I read a really, another really good one called uh, Kisses on a Postcard that's a memoir by Terence Frisbee I think yes. something like that. that was really um enjoyable part, mostly because he really enjoyed it but um Doreen yes is a is a novel that is um it's basically about the sort of unspoken competition between the mother of, of Doreen and the woman who she goes to live with during the evacuation, yeah, whose house she's evacuated to. Um, and the mother's very much wanted children and hasn't had them. And, it, and it's sort of the role of the honorary mother and the very protective actual mother who doesn't want her child to go but knows that she has to but might take her back if, if need be, all that sort of thing. It's a very moving look at, um, yeah, how, not just how it affected the child, but how it must have affected, yeah, people who were looking on these people who were there, for, children who were there for years and years, do the very important parts of their development as sort of their own adopted children, yeah. who they then didn't, maybe didn't see again. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, I mean, the whole scheme of evacuation, we, we know it happened, and it's just part of our you know, our cultural history now, but it yeah. must have been so extraordinary at the time. Well, yeah, um, absolutely. And I think it really shows how shocking and how polarised life was. Um, and also you have this image of everyone being like, oh, how nice, we want to help everybody. But uh, in fact, a lot of people are very reluctant to have evacuees and they don't really want these people in their homes. And also you see what a complete 
um, upheaval to people's lives it was. You all, all of a sudden, oh, hey, you've got three children now and you're probably going to have them for the next five years. Yeah. Um, and it's crazy, and you don't really have a choice. Yeah, yeah. And yes, I guess that's the theme of even wars, um, put out more flags as well, but um, in a rather less sensitive and rather meaner fashion. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, yeah, it is. It's um, such an interesting aspect of war that I think can al- almost endlessly interesting in different novelizations and, and memoirs, and it can be treated very... Um, very sweetly, I guess. I'm sure some people loved the experience and, you know, stayed in touch and all that sort of thing. Um, but yes, it's, it's really interesting in, in Good Night, Mr. Tom to see, I guess, yeah, how it does, you've, you've got the whole aspect of how Willie's, how Willie's life has been traumatic and how he's affected, but it does have that beautiful journey of Tom learning to be a parent as, at the same time, he, he's, he's changing just as much as Willie is, and that, that's drawn so beautifully. And I think that's something that you don't understand as a child that you can understand later. Yeah. It's just such a rich book, and it's one of those wonderful ones that you can read as a child and as an adult and still get so much from. Have you read anything else by her? I think I have, but I can't... I mean, my sister had quite a few of her books, and they're more kind of, you know, like teenage girly books. Mm. Um, I have read a couple, but I, I can't remember much about them. I haven't read anything of hers that struck me in the same profound way as I felt that um, Goodnight Mr. Tom did. Yes, yeah, similarly, I've not read anything else by her. Um, and I don't know, it sort of feels such a a perfect standalone book that it would almost be weird to read anything else by her, although I'm sure that's not what her publicist would like. Is she, is she still alive? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to Google that. Let's see. I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, she is still alive. Um, what? She is just... Oh, she's 68. Oh. It's not, not even that old. Well, um, and was born the day before my birthday, albeit not the same year. <laughs> exactly. Well. <laughs> um, let's see, I'm looking at her works. She's written one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, thirteen books. Oh, but none of them obviously had the same, um, you know, reach as the Good Night, yeah. Mr. Tom was her first one, so. Really? Perhaps that um, had been a story that had been staying with her for a while or something. No. Well, it's a beautiful story, and if anyone listening hasn't read it, you really must. Absolutely. Um, oh, gosh, we have been talking for a while. So we should come to a close. It's, it's quite hard to choose with these books um, because they're so different. Yeah. Um, I think my choice, although I love them both, would ultimately be Matilda, um, perhaps because because I read it just those sort of three or four years earlier, it made more of an impact on me as... as as a reader and state, you know, more part of my formative learning to love books, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but yes, do you love them both? Which would, which would you choose? Good night, Mr. Tom, without a shadow of a doubt. Oh, very, very determined. <laughs> love it. I just think it's one of the most perfect books and I would, you know, press it. I would love to press it on everybody. I tell all the kids at school to read it. Oh, and do they? Have they? Yeah, lots of them have, and then they've been like, oh, we bet, we bet you really cried, miss. I'm like, yeah, I did. <laughs> I think I need to go and reread it as well, because, um, in fact, I need to reread both of them. It's been years and years since I read either of them. They've inspired me. Wow, good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> cool. So, um, our, our whole deciding what we, what we're going to do next time thing has fallen by the wayside. Yeah. But, so we'll, we'll fill you in it. 
moments before the next, you listen to the next episode, I assume. <laughs> um, <laughs> or maybe not even then, frankly. <laughs> Halfway through the episode, you'll work out what we're talking about. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so do let us know whether you are a, whether a soldier or honor or a giver upper, um, and which you choose out of Matilda and good night, Mr. Tom. We'd love to know your thoughts. Yes, we would. Um, and yeah, we'll feedback on what Rachel thought of the Dover Road and if I loved it as much a second time when we talk to you <laughs> in the next episode, if we're still speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.